You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, this is Abraham. And Ryan O. So this is Why We Do What We Do. Your favorite consumable psychology podcast. But you're going to have that saying like memorized just coming right to the tip of your tongue after a while, right? <laughs> that the people, exactly. our listener, they're going to hear, this is Abraham, this is Ryan, uh, consumable podcast, yeah, whatever. <laughs> Bill, let's go through it. So welcome back. This is a part two. Uh, so if you hadn't already listened to the first one of this, make sure you go back and listen to last week. Um, it is an extension of two of our guests that hopped on, Hannah Brannigan and Ryan Cartledge. They are amazing, passionate, and very knowledgeable animal trainers, um, both with really cool, different, extensive histories and backgrounds. So yep. I don't know where to go with this. No, I, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. I, I believe in this one. We're going to tackle a little bit more of how this concept of aggression relates to human behavior. I think we also talk a bit about some examples of solutions for managing aggressive behavior and um, at least a couple of examples. I think the one he gives with the, the goose, which may have been a story that was told in the first half of this. I'm not total, totally sure, but also a bunch of uh, more stories and personal information and just great stuff in this episode. So hopefully you'll enjoy the second part of our discussion on dog breeded personality. It might be a little bit jarring just to warn you it's going to jump right into that conversation so here we go i'm super stoked for y'all to listen to the part on replacement behaviors and that sort of discussion because that is crucial perfect so i hope you enjoy all right i think removing it immediately and focusing on behavior can actually save lives Uh, i I remember a a goose that was at a wildlife park free free roaming Uh, and it used to it was called aggressive. It was, his name was security, <laughs> actually. I mean, it used to attack people's shoes and fly them. Uh, one day it actually knocked over a pram, a baby pram. Yeah. Uh, and then, you so know, it's a, a stroller to those a, people uh, who aren't from New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> knocked over a stroller, and and so what happened to this goose is it ended up being confined uh, in in the area where where I was working. And people would walk into the space and this goose would fly at your head. Uh, it was living with another bird that needed to be trained for a show, which made training the other bird challenging. Um, so euthanasia got discussed. Let's, let's kill this bird. For me, it was like, well, the bird just doesn't sit in that enclosure and just fly at the door waiting for a human to walk in. Like, there's a very clear antecedent there that we can start to work with. Uh, and so we we stationed trained this goose within like it took us three days to get this goose to go stand on a black piece of wood when we went in there. Uh, so for me, it's it makes me think about another thing that came to my mind as you were all talking and sharing your stories was that study, uh, and you, you potentially might know more about it than me, where they separated kids up and they called some kids brainy and some kids less brainy, and then. Yeah the way that the teachers interacted with those kids was influenced by the information they'd been given about the intelligence of the kids mm-hmm. and therefore the kids learning trajectory was influenced by that yeah and so it had a, nothing to actually do with their intelligence it was just the way that they framed it yeah so think about the word aggression being thrown around about our animals uh and and if, if the clients or the the keeper or whoever has that animal is not lucky enough to have someone like Hannah come in who understands that you know, behavior is what we can see and hear and it's influenced by its environment, then that, the word aggression can actually, it can actually cause us to come to solutions like euthanasia. Yeah. Um, So I'm pretty keen in an early stage to have a discussion about what aggression looks like uh, and start to move away from actually using that word, not because I don't think it potentially might be something that fits into a... scientific definition that we have of aggression but because i i want to additionally change how this animal is being perceived uh and that it's not this thing that just like the behavior is not inside the animal's head the behavior is in the environment Uh, unless there's some neurological stuff going on there it might be a little bit more complicated than that uh the the behavior is coming from changes in the animal's environment that's communicating to it do this now because this is what's worked in the past uh, and then we're labeling it as aggressive. But if we're, if we're using the label aggression, we've placed the cause of that behavior inside the animal's head, we forget to look for all of those things, and it can cause some pretty extreme 
uh, measures. Yeah, it just kind of highlights that drum we continually beat on this podcast of there's much more than one thing going on here. It's kind of this holistic, everything's affecting in the moment. You know, so I have a couple things. And one is I want to propose a suggested definition of aggression. And I'm inviting you specifically to tear this apart if you think this doesn't work. Because I want to, I want to see if I'm wrong about this. But it, this occurred to me with all the discussion that's been happening that maybe a useful way of thinking about this is that aggression in in animals or, or kind of anybody is when a particular behavior is perceived as a threat by a human. I, that works for me. I, I was actually thinking that when I get a call and the the, the adjective aggressive is used as a descriptor, it tells me more about how the it tells me more about the human who's making the call than it does about the dog yeah so it's it's in and and that is since i'm really working i'm working with people right and and to keep the dog in the home and to keep the dog alive um because as soon as aggression is on the table so is euthanasia ryan's exactly right yeah i need to i need to meet the human where he or she is this person feels threatened it may be from my side of things valid or invalid but there's a human behavior element there, and it could be that this dog, that the aggressive behavior that they're perceiving is directed at uh, at themselves, at the owner, which is very sad because once you're afraid of your own dog, that's a big problem. It could be directed yeah. at other people. It could be directed at other dogs or other animals, either in the household or out of the household. And having that information as far as what the what the human who's making the call, who's writing the check, um, is perceiving as a problem does give me does give me information about how I need to proceed. But then once I've got that, the other half of that is well, what's exactly as Ryan described? Like, what are the behaviors that are actually happening? What are the antecedents? What are the things that are are setting off this behavior? And then what is what is making it work for the dog? Because it all behavior has a function. So there's some, there's some function, there's some um, consequence that this behavior is seeking. And then I can use both of those kind of all those, all those puzzle pieces, both sides of that to, to try and come up with a, a, a plan that helps a human feel safe, addresses the behavior. And, and that's, you know, that's what a, a, a treatment plan would need to look like. Yeah, it occurs to me, and I want I want Ryan you to to weigh in as well. But it occurs to me that the the fact that it's perceived as a threat, it might be like this. This might be behavior that is legitimately dangerous. That doesn't mean that euthanasia is the best like thing that you then do next, right? Um, so, but even then, that's sort of where I, one of the things I also was I thought was useful inside of the implication of that as a definition is that like being perceived as a threat I means it might be a threat, and that means that there's something to do, like there's something specific to do. So my attempt in that what what I was sort of hearing was like we we call we only call it aggression because of the the label that's given to it by somebody, and they only give it to that situation when they're feeling when they basically report that right. And so I don't even know necessarily how they feel or what they're thinking about it, but when they say this is aggression, then they're responding to something that seems to, at least in the moment, be a warning or a threat or some kind of signal that means this needs to change and need to get away from it, make it go away sort of thing. But I think that you're also right that that doesn't really, again, tell you much more about the behavior than saying, my animal's doing stuff. And and then you still need to know what, what kind of stuff. When do they do this stuff? What do you do when they do that stuff? Like, there's still so many questions to answer. What were you going to say, Hannah? I, well, I, was, I wanted to throw another possible categorization in that I think that I sometimes find helpful, starting to kind of bring it to more of a functional analysis kind of kind of angle in that when I'm working with these cases, one of the first things that we'll try – well, so we try to identify, you know, what is the what is the function of this behavior? What is the, the change in the environment that um, that the individual is – that the behavior is directed towards, towards getting right. Um, and so like there's, there's two categories that we'll often look at first and is, is this function, is this a distance increasing behavior? It's trying to make the thing go away. It's trying to make the person go away, get out of my house, go away, go away, go away. And any, there's a lot of behaviors that can fall in that category. Um, and then there's the flip side, there's distance decreasing. I want the thing to come closer. Now, What's fascinating to me is that there is some overlap in the behavior. So those are like two different functions, whatever the thing is in question. Let's say it's a person. Mm -hmm. I want the person to go further away from me. 
And we might use words like threat or fear in, in describing that. If I'm the person describing it, I might like that dog to go further away from me because I yeah. feel threatened, because I feel afraid, because he's aggressive. But the flip right. side, the person is approaching the dog. The dog may change his behavior, may exhibit behaviors um, in an effort to get that person to go further away. Stop coming towards me. Go away. Um, I've got to scare the UPS guy. And so far, it's worked every day. Um, in fact, I scared him so bad, he's dropped his boxes and he got yeah. in his truck and, and drove off. I'll continue Victory. my vigilance. Yeah. On the flip side, you may have the, the dog that wants that person to come closer. And it's always really interesting to me that we may see lunging, growling, barking behaviors with either function. So you can't assume. Um, mm-hmm. and in fact, we may describe the dog that wants the person to come closer as frustrated. He really wants to greet. In fact, frustrated greeters is another label that gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. Um, he's seeking that that social interaction. He really wants to say hi, but there's a leash or a fence in his way. And so you get this frustration-based extinction kind of burst of behavior, barking, lunging, um, which may, if there's a small person attached to the leash, and that's what's preventing you from accessing that person, greeting that person, well, lunging and barking may drag your your storm anchor closer to the, the goal. And so it gets reinforced. And so we, we can see the same behaviors. But again, for me, the first thing that I want to know, once I know the things like as Ryan was talking about, under what circumstances are we seeing this behavior? You know, what, what has changed right before the behavior occurs? Okay, then what's changing after? What's the function of that behavior? If I can identify that, again, that tells me what kind of, what kind of training plan I need I need to be thinking of um, to address it, but it also gives me good information about how safe am I going to be in this in this situation. Sure, because uh, continuing to approach a dog that's telling you to go away usually not a good idea. Yeah. The next thing I really wanted to ask about, well, just based on what you're saying, I think that's perfect. Is I don't know if you want to talk about this as advice, but like, what do you, what do you do about this? Like, what just general sort of, I guess ideas around how to handle or interventions for this and and maybe just sharing it in the context of examples of stories of where you've been able to successfully manage this or general these are things that you could sort of generally do as preventative measures as well i don't know what what are your thoughts i like i like that adding professor of that definition that maybe we can add to that definition that aggression is an animal exhibiting behavior in an attempt to try to achieve uh, X function. So yeah. remove an aversive stimuli. And what were there some other ones? Let's go with that for now. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what do we do to? So let's come back to uh, the goose security. Uh, so, I mean, what I do now is. And what I did then, and I remember um, meeting Dr. Susan Friedman at the time at a parrot conference in Australia, uh, and her teaching me about functional assessments and intervention designs. Uh, and I remember I had bad wisdom teeth at the time, uh, so I was sitting in the dentist's office uh, and just thinking about behavior, because that's what I do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I whipped out this functional assessment and intervention design form and just started going through it for security of the goose. And bear in mind, at this time, I had no experience uh, with professionally, whatever that means, uh, managing behavior. Like I was just got a job in, in a zoo where my job was to manage behavior. you know. And, and the things that I was being told to do uh, were really removing choice from these animals' lives. And what? how does that help with behaviors we might label as aggression? Yeah. Um, yeah. In my, uh, and anyway, so I did this functional assessment and intervention design, uh, which is a, a form that Dr. Susan Friedman offers for free. Uh, and I, it just took me through a systematic process of thinking about, does this animal need a vet check? What is the ecological significance? What are the observable behaviors? When does it happen? What are the consequences? Uh, and then what is the function? How can we provide this function for this animal in a different way? Uh, what, are some beha- uh, what are some environmental changes that we can make to help this animal be more successful and make the incorrect behavior, the behavior that has functioned for the animal that we don't like, 
how can we make that less likely to occur and make the behaviours we want more likely to occur? Uh, and what are some new behaviours that we can teach this animal and how would we go about doing that? Right. So that which that's is, kind of... Which is super, super similar to how it works as a behaviour analyst. <laughs> exactly <laughs> like the you same. Just, you just describe the process, yeah. 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 Does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean... Um... Yeah, that, that's great. I would love to hear from uh, Hannah as well, see so, uh, what, what you'd be willing to add to that. Um, can we talk about prevention first? Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Yes. So, um, so something that we didn't, we didn't really talk about when we were talking about like the getting into the why or the factors that, that could lead to it or, or contribute. I think one of the, one of the key things so we've got, we've got learning history in general, right? Like take the the genetic package the dog brings, we put that on the shelf because there's nothing we can do about that at this point. I'm a dog trainer, not a geneticist, so unless we're going to do like some CRISPR um, situation, I, I, <laughs> I can't change that. But um, the learning history, totally, we, you know, we've been circling around this, has a big difference. And we'll often divide that into kind of two big categories. Like one is what we call socialization. So the really early learning, which is sometimes hard to split out from other categories, you know, genetic inherited, whatever. I don't, again, I don't know that it's productive because it doesn't matter. Yeah. This is the animal we have to date. But since that familiar versus unfamiliar is such a, a key factor in whether it's tripping, whether it's, you know, it's uh, the, the stimuli is something that's, that's uh, we're seeing is related to the, the aggressive behavior, that kind of socialization element, I think is when we have to, we talk about because that is the, the part of the learning that is where, the dog is def, you know kind of defining familiar or unfamiliar. That that's what makes those those groups. So people who are in that inner circle, they're more familiar. I've seen them. That's normal for me. I'm less likely to feel threatened. I'm struggling to talk about this without using these words, but yeah. um, but that makes me feel more threatened. So I'm more likely to to do these behaviors to send that that person or thing away. And we will often see patterns emerge men versus women is a really common one men are more frequently not men make him aggressive he hates men but um possibly less experienced with men um so these are things that, that we can address by creating good learning experiences adults versus children my dogs seem to be great with kids imagine why right like they they live in a household children are normal short people making a lot of noise that's a very normal thing for them that is that is an exception, however. Like most uh, most dogs, especially working dogs, unless they have a lot of exposure to kids, it's not normal for them. They're much more likely to react under those circumstances. Once that I'm going through right now, actually, with my youngest dog, I have a puppy. He's eight months old, and he's a summer puppy. And all of a sudden, the people that he doesn't know in his life got a lot bigger in December than they were before. They suddenly have um, – their profiles have changed – their, their skins have totally changed. They're wearing coats. They're wearing coats and gloves and hats and scarves. And that really freaked him out for the first month or so. Um, we had the weather change. And uh, and still people with the hoods up, with big puffy parkas on, approaching him are really weird. And so he's, you know, on teetering between does he want to, to try out some barking behavior and see if he can chase those terrifying monsters away? Um, or is he going to hopefully exhibit the behavior they've been working on, which is, hey look at mama and I'll give you some cookies. <laughs> right. So those are common things. Sunglasses, backpacks, you know, it's just, it's the unfamiliar can be a factor. So from a prevention standpoint, making sure that my dog, both in what we would traditionally consider that socialization period. So, you know, puppyhood eight to 16 weeks, or, or if you're getting a puppy at that age, depending on whose book you're reading, may go a little shorter, a little bit longer. I don't think it really matters because from a practical standpoint, what I want to make sure is that my dog is having a wide range of positive learning experiences with all of the different pictures and types of um, mostly people because aggression towards people tends to be the bigger the bigger problem in terms of keeping keeping animals in homes. Yeah. Um, but also but also other dogs. So what can I do to and it's not just exposure, right? That's um, when we say social socialization, sometimes there's a misconception that it's an exposure thing. I just need to get my dog exposed to a ton of different dogs, but uh, or a ton of different people, but exposure that is unpleasant is more likely to create a problem than yep. a neutral or positive experience. So I want to make sure that my young herding dog has a a lot a wide range of experiences that are very positive with a lot of different types of people in different settings and different situations so that um, what he's learning is oh people approach it's either neutral or a good thing and therefore 
there's no function, right? There, there's no need to drive that person away. And so then those problematic behaviors that may be motivated by sending the scary thing away, they don't come up because there's not a scary thing. It's familiar. I like that. Uh, I, I've referred to that idea of like simple exposure is the key is sort of like uh, the the hypothesis of learning by osmosis or sort of like um, we take kids with special needs and put them into the the classrooms with with peers who are above their level and be like, well, they'll just they'll just get it from being close to them. Like you can like learning's contagious. You just get close enough to someone who understands the material well enough and you'll just catch it. Like boom, I can read now because I was next to that kid who can read. I think that's only reserved for ignorance. (laughs) (laughs) And so that idea that like simply you just put them in a situation where there's other animals or other people and they're like, oh they'll they'll just that's all all it really takes. So yeah, I like that you brought in the fact that it should be um, a positive experience and you know, something that I, I was thinking about, and Ryan, I'll let you jump, jump in just a sec, is that another thing inside of prevention is looking at how people can, how they behave toward their animals when they're just around them in sort of everyday circumstance. And that there there are some people that are, that really have the opinion that you need to use punishment as the primary driver of, of teaching. They use shock collars or you know, um, water bottles or whatever, whatever unpleasant thing you can get to, to try and hurt the animals that they learn don't do this sort of thing. And that there was even one person I heard of who I think has gained some popularity on Facebook, although I'm not on Facebook, so I don't actually know, but that this, this person was saying something like, you know, don't, don't use food to try and train your, your animals because then you're just going to have a fat, non-compliant animal. They just they should just do it because they're supposed to do it. And if they don't do it, then you slap them. And I'm just like, that is absolutely backwards. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah. And so then the other thing I think of is when I'm around animals that have been – that seem like when, when I approach that they back away and I see them – either ruffle a little bit or they hide or they growl or, you know, they make some kind of noise or posture that indicates to me that my approaching is, is something they don't want to have happen. Like they, this is, it looks to me like distance increasing is what they want. That what I try and do is, is be first of all, quiet and small and as, as much as possible associated with other good stuff. So I'm like, Hey, like I got some food over here. I'm like, I'm not going to come at you with it, but if I'm just gonna put it out and if you want to come get it, like, that's cool. And like, I just try and make myself as much as possible. Like I'm just always going to be when I'm around, like always going to be nice. Always going to have good stuff. I'm the chocolate chip cookie. Yeah. One thing I was, <laughs> yeah, I'm a chocolate chip cookie. Please don't, please do not eat me. As I said, in the past, I worked um, in a pretty severe behavior case situation um, where we only worked with youth that were in situations for years that led to them needing a two-staff to one-student ratio because of the severity of their problem behavior. And everything that we've talked about on like, the circumstances influence those, influence those sort of things is really relevant. But one thing that I, I realized pretty quickly was it wasn't the quantity of interactions necessarily like you're talking about here, Hannah. Like you have to be mindful of the, the quantity of interactions and which way are they going. So the first thing we used to always do... Did, did you, you mean quality? Is that what you're saying? We would focus on the quality of those interactions. Okay. You said quantity the second time, so I just wanted to make sure that's what you Yeah, mean. well, a lot of people would be like, we need to get in here and help them as fast as we can and do as much as we possibly can to help them out. And like, we need to have very, very good, solid interactions. Like We need to build that trust, show them that this environment is totally different than the ones that you've been interacting with. And sometimes it was... Like you were saying, like we were waiting, we would work one day, all day, six hours for just one great interaction that really resonated with them where they contacted, like this is a nurturing environment. And that that strategy helped us so much. Like every every student that we worked with, we, we started to build the things that people talk about, like building trust and such through those sort of procedures. It was amazing what it would do uh, to transform lives. Awesome. That's really cool, Ryan. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it's the quality, not the quantity. Whether we're talking about treatment or prevention, I would rather the puppy have zero interactions with a man with sunglasses than have one bad one, right? So it's it's if you're going to have an interaction, make sure it's a good one. You're putting money in the bank account uh, and not withdrawing. And I think that that imp- cannot be overemphasized, that, that making sure that um, especially especially if you have an individual that either has because of learning history or because of – um, what they came with with their genetic baggage. Um, you think there's a higher risk involved. I'm going to be 
and I'm saying this because I have Belgian Shepherds. That's my main five, three of my five dogs are, are Belgian Shepherds, which are not a breed that are, are have a reputation for being particularly friendly with strangers. <laughs> They're a working breed. There people associate them. You've seen them out about as police dogs and their reputation is well earned. But I have, I mean, I have kids, I have families, we go out and in order for my dogs to be functional in that kind of lifestyle, I need to make sure that when they see a human, they're thinking good, good things. Oh, people predict good stuff. Kids predict good stuff. Yeah. And, and so I, I'm, I'm really heavily invested. If I have people coming over to my house, I'm either going to be completely on top of the situation, making sure, especially that my young dogs are, are having a good experience with this is, this is predicting good things. I'm in control of, um, of the interaction. They have a way to get uh, to avoid, which we should probably talk about, or I'm going to put them in the backyard. I'm going to put them in crates in the bedroom with uh, something good to chew on and have them not interact at all. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're no point are they just loose in the house while unfamiliar people walk in and I'm in the kitchen, you know, making cocktails or nachos or whatever. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> or both. <laughs> But it, or both, or both, you know, it's something that I really want to emphasize. I am, I am very invested in that. I am, I am always making sure before the people come over that I am, am I going to be in training mode here? And sometimes, sometimes no. You know, if my, if my daughter is having a birthday party, oh my God, I'm not going to be a dog trainer that day. I'm going to create my dogs. They're going to be out of the house and they'll, and they're happier that way. Um, that's a much better way for them to spend those couple of hours than trying to be loose in this cocktail party setting, not really knowing what to do. And the likelihood of a kid that I don't know and can't control startling them or accidentally hurting them or them just getting um, just done. Everybody's, everybody who goes to a cocktail party, there's a point at which, well, at least I'm an introvert. So, but um, that's a different episode. But anyways, the, there's, there's a point at which I'm just kind of done. And if I don't have a way out, I may get snappy. I don't want that for my dogs. So I'm going to make sure that either I'm making sure that I'm controlling their experience or I'm keeping them out of it so they don't have to deal with it. Yeah. That's great. Ron, I don't remember if you if you've told the whole story. I was going to ask if you could also finish talking about how you dealt with the goose, like <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. getting it to stand on the box and, and how you your, your baby attacking goose you were talking about. Sure. <laughs> try, 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 try to bring it back. My, my mind's been pinging all over the place. Yeah, there's, there's, some, there's a lot of amazing topics, and I, and I, want, I want to go everywhere. But that one, I, I was just thinking about uh, that story, and I really wanted to make sure we got back to it because I think that's one of those where we hear – like wow, we had this really big problem and we got it solved. And then, if I if I were a listener, I'm thinking like, how? I, I want to hear it. Let's say, say more. So I just yeah. wanted to make sure we brought it back. We we want to hear all the things about security of the baby bomber. <laughs> awesome. I'm, I'm so and, and RIP security. Um, there was a cyclone up there and something happened and he passed away unfortunately. Um, um, tropical North Queensland. And one of the other interesting topics I think that's been brought up is, is I love how Hannah manages to talk about cocktails, I think, in every <laughs> podcast episode that I hear, and nice. which is awesome. So with security, let's bounce back to what you were saying, Abraham, about you know, how you approach a dog who you might be sensing some whispers from about them not wanting you uh, to come close enough. And I, I always frame it in my mind that we want to be the, the predictors of pleasant and positive events. Uh, and I think I got that quote from a, an American bird trainer called Steve Martin. Uh, and what Ryan said uh, reminds me of what Susan Friedman says about, you know, effectiveness is, is not enough. We want to be focusing on about how the animal is perceiving all of this stuff as well. Uh, and then <laughs> I, I stand on the shoulder of giants. Uh, Louise Jinman, a mentor of mine from uh, Australia, who is the president of the Association of Pet Dog Trainers uh, in that in this region of the world and uh, the head carnival keeper at Taronga Zoo in Sydney. So she she works with lions and tigers and bears and uh, all these animals that we need protective contact with, right? We don't jump in there and be like, hey, can I approach you, lion? <laughs> um, <laughs> but Louise says that punishment starts where knowledge ends. So, you know, it, it's illogical to think about someone who knows about behavior, behavior science and and strategies and techniques uh, and mechanical skills to influence that behavior for them to go and then stick an electric shock collar on their dog or whatever it is they're doing with their horse uh, and you know the, the example is probably more s- extreme out of the zoo world um, so you know just to remember to have compassion for these people as well I think who they're not that they, they they most of the time they have the same goals as us Right, and that is they want to do the best for the animal, 
Um, they just don't. They have different ways of going about it. And and I think you know when we're shoving those shock collars on and those choke chains and using whips or whatever, uh, and something that I see in people that aren't necessarily trying to uh, strategically and, and or not that's not what I wanted to say they're not learning about behavior they don't want to necessarily understand the geekiness to the level that we do yeah. um, is that they're focused on how can I get my dog to stop doing what it's doing now rather than how is what I'm about to do with my dog going to influence that dog's decision to do behaviors tomorrow um, and so just wanted to add that in there because I made some notes as you guys were talking. But I suck at us answering questions, apparently. Security <laughs> the goose. <laughs> the baby attacking goose. Um, so I was in the dentist, never done. I met Susan Freeman, and she'd done her like really short Living and Learning with Animals presentation, and we'd done a functional assessment, and um, I was kind of intrigued, and I wanted to learn more. So I whipped out the form and started to go through it uh, in, that str- in the systematic way that I mentioned before about how I would approach a situation like this so we thought what we focused a lot at that time you know I probably I potentially didn't address the function of the behavior as much as I might do now uh, but we thought what behaviors could we teach instead uh, and how can we set the environment up to set this animal up for success so I mentioned earlier we made a station so what I mean by that is a, a black we painted a piece of wood black and we taught the animal that if you put two webbed feet on this platform, good things happen. Uh, and literally, like I said, it took us three days. Like we could use corn to communicate to this animal. When human approaches gate, step, webbed feet on black platform, corn rains down from the sky. <laughs> uh, and then it was a process of slowly like working our way in there and opening the door more and more and teaching that when we do that, corn rains down. And then one foot in, corn rains down, two feet in. So this goose was learning, I get corn and human doesn't come in. Uh, And then eventually we could go in. uh, And then I literally completely gutted that space for that goose. And I built like a structure with a door that we could let the goose in and close. So station, maintain station, whilst human walks in, human slides food into the structure and then releases you, you run into structure, you get the rest of your food, door closes, we train your friend Bruce the Brolga, uh, and then we release you, and happy days. Nice. That's basically what we did. But up until that point, people were talking about, they were just saying, Bruce is aggressive. And they didn't, therefore, do the five steps of interpreting body language that I mentioned before, and say, what does that behavior look like what are the antecedents? What are the consequences? Which can then lead us to solutions. But I, th- I think, you know, and, 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 and my superiors at this time were potentially in a situation where people might label them as more knowledgeable and more experienced than me, which if you look at the longevity of time that they had spent in the industry, they were. But the punishment started for them when knowledge ends because they didn't, they hadn't met Susan Fred. <laughs> they hadn't, <laughs> they hadn't um, learnt this side of behavior. Perfect. Yeah. So I just, I want to add to that because I think it's a fantastic example and we actually have, so punishment always comes up and I think one of the problems with, especially when aggression is, is, is on the table is the, the punishment is, is pretty reinforcing to the punisher. Yeah. So if I'm feeling threatened or angry or afraid, punishing the thing that makes me feel that way feels better. So I get reinforced for that. But we also have a ton of studies with thousands of dogs that show that punishment-based training actually is associated with higher rates of aggressive behavior, not lower. So for throwing things out there for predictive factors. And I, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head and I should we'll Google it real quick and put it in the show notes maybe. But I want to say it's like two to three times more aggressive behaviors than it were seen in dogs that were trained through punishment-based techniques, whether that's yelling or electric collar or physical punishment or whatever. Yeah. We tend to see higher increases of, of punishment. And the, the, or sorry, the increases of aggression associated with punishment. In my experience, you know, punishment tends to suppress that behavior, but when we're in that mind space, we're not thinking 
the way that Ryan was thinking was solving the goose problem, we're not thinking about what's causing the behavior. We're just thinking about stopping it. And so if everything else is the same and I just add an aversive, I just add something unpleasant. When my dog barks, I'm going to pop his collar. I may suppress the barking, but if everything else stays the same, what inevitably happens is that that suppression tends to be temporary. So eventually either he's going to develop, just develop a callus to that, to that particular form of punishment. And so it, he'll override it and we'll see the behavior come back up. Usually that occurs with some, some in combination with some human relaxing of, of the guard, right? Like, Oh, I've solved this problem because every time my dog barked at that person coming in, I, I popped and told him no. And he quit barking. Um, and then four years later, Oh, I, you know, I stopped with the punisher and then, and the behavior comes right, right. back often worse. But even more importantly, and what I love about the station training the goose, if we're just using punishment, we are not giving the animal a, a, a what to do. We're not giving them something else to replace the undesired behavior. Again, everything else, they're, they're not, they're not, that behavior is still in their repertoire. Once we've seen it, it's never going to go away. And if we don't replace it with a way to get that same, those same needs met, it's going to come back. It's always going to come back. So when I'm treating... And when I'm working with an aggressive behavior, we want to replace it. I'm looking at kind of three main things, right? So we have the, what is the, what are the circumstances under which it's occurring? What's the current reinforcer that's maintaining it? He wants the function of this behavior is to send the person away. I want the person to go further away from me. Great. Okay. Now we know that. We know the circumstances when that is a problem. An unfamiliar person um, walking up the driveway or coming through the front door would be a really common scenario. So I want to put some management in place so that everybody stays safe during the training plan. So that's my very first thing after, after that kind of functional analysis. So um, maybe that means we put up some baby gates so that the dog doesn't have access to the front door space while, um, while we're doing the training and possibly, you know, long-term depending on the situation. Um, Because I don't, what won't help is continuing to have unfamiliar people enter the house and continuing to have the dog, growl, bark, and snap, and have that person go away. So the more the UPS guy drops off packages and goes away after being barked at, the the stronger that behavior is going to be. So I need to stop. I need to to block that. I want to put some other behavior in place, whether it's go to station, whether it's, um, so we'll use that in dogs. We'll have um, them go lay on a bed, go lay on a dog bed, or um, I love to use a little elevated cot, um, a platform, or a bed. Any of those things will work great. I can put that at some distance, and I love to put it at the opposite end. So if the problem is occurring at the front door, I'm going to put that station on the other side um, of the room. So they are, instead of rushing towards the front door, when the person knocks, they're running away from the front door. I can teach that out of context using food reinforcement. So there's nobody at the door at all. Go to your place. Here's some food. Go to your place. Here's some food. And then I can substitute that in. The person knocks on the door. Go to your place. Food's on the place. The dog goes to the station, and then the person goes away. And I think that's that last piece is where it becomes really important, where whatever the original motivator was, the person doesn't touch me, the person goes away, we respect that. We're just having now that is going to reinforce the new behavior of going to your place, going to your bed, instead of rushing the front door and snapping at the person. That's really important. Grisha Stewart is a trainer who does a lot of work with using, substituting kind of more socially acceptable behaviors in, in the situation where the dog wants the other dog or wants the person to go away. Turning and sniffing the ground is a way more socially acceptable way to react to an un- undesirable person approaching or a dog person or dog approaching you. Um, you know, if somebody sits down next to you at a bar and you don't really want to talk to them, you could just turn your head and maybe play with your phone and that's way better than stabbing them. <laughs> so there's a lot, of, a lot of behaviors that, that we can substitute in there, but the, the function is still in place of, I don't have to talk to that person or I, that person doesn't um, come into my space and I can feel safer. We can, we can talk about um, breaking in order for that to be most effective. We'll often need to take um, sort of a counter conditioning desensitization kind of protocol as well. So not just having the biggest, most unfamiliar man with sunglasses and a parka storming into the house, but um, you know, maybe someone familiar knocking on the door and then leaving. So we can, we can, stair step up from easiest to hardest while reinforcing the dog for going to their place, going to their bed and bring that in. But I, I think that, that the really key part is having a specific behavior that we are 
putting in there for them to do. That's something else, but it's, it's, it's very, very specific. It's very concrete. It's something that's reinforceable. It's something that the human and the animal are very clear on. Is it happening or not happening versus did he growl a little bit less that time? Should we reinforce? Uh, let's, let's take all of that out of the equation and let's just have him go sit on a, on a platform and then I can tell if the dog's on the platform or not. The dog can tell if he's on the platform or not. My helper who's doing the door knocking can tell if the dog's on the platform or not. And everything gets so much clearer. And that I think that clarity helps the process go a lot faster yeah, that than it might otherwise. Functional replacements like that is like one of the most tried and true basic things with mm-hmm. all behavior that just has to be there. Like our research tells us that over and over and over again. That was like the replacement strategy for our culture that used to punish pretty heavily too. Like that's what we realized Mm -hmm. from all that punishment research was like, Oh, we need to have something that's actually serving this behavior, this function still. Yeah. That motivation. You can tell that we are a whole bunch of podcasters by the (laughs) fact that we can like, we we can really talk about something and and go in depth, which is great. And, And you guys have been really wonderful. I think this, this is long enough to be two or man, even three episodes if we wanted it to be, and, okay. and that, which is awesome. Like, I love all, all that content. And I would like to invite you to consider that we, we go ahead and, and, and wrap this up now and have everyone have an opportunity to provide their closing thoughts. For sure. And then, uh, and then yeah, we'll uh, – yeah, I'd like to uh, inv- invite you now to, to provide any closing uh, thoughts that you have. I just think that everyone listening to this, uh, firstly, thank you for, for investing your time and, and learning about this. Uh, we, we, we appreciate that. Um, and just invite you really to, to carry on the conversation um, and to uh, always be asking, going back to that question, that statement that I offered, that I borrowed from Susan Friedman, I'll give it back, Susan, uh, is that uh, effectiveness is not enough. So what does that look like? Uh, for me, it looks like just consistently asking a question, which is how can we do this better? Uh, and knowing that punishment starts where knowledge ends uh, and that when I started Animal Training Academy four years ago uh, and I hadn't done stuff with dogs, uh, it had all been zoo-based and I thought I knew way more than I did. (laughs) Uh, And then I'm looking at stuff right now, there's a conference going on in the UK called Wolf and I'm looking at people uh, posting slides from uh, Dr. Joe Lang, and I'm just like, what the? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and so uh, it just, what is effectiveness is not, uh, sorry, effectiveness is not enough. What, is, what does that mean to me? What does most positive, less intrusive mean to me with regards to how we work with these animals? It's to consistently learn and be asking how we can do this better. That, that They are my closing thoughts. Not much to do with aggression, but uh, additionally, everything to do with aggression. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's lovely. Very good. Yeah. Hannah. I would say, I, I think something that we need to to consider to round it off is that the, these behavioral principles apply to the people as well as the animals. So whether it's your own dog that you're having the behavior problem, whether you're a professional who's working with someone else, have a little compassion for yourself as well. One of the things that I noticed working, I'm going to date myself, but this is, I mean, this has been my full-time job for the last 15 years is we've we've kind of had a little bit of a pendulum swing from it's all the dog's fault to oh my god it's all my fault I'm the one who's who's created this and and then there's a lot of guilt and shame associated yeah. with that and that's not fair either yeah. there's not it's not necessary to blame anybody like that's the the whole point in as Ryan was describing it in in identifying what does the behavior look like what are the conditions like that relieves the need to find fault yeah because whatever happened in the past, you know what that's happened. This learning has occurred. This is this this is our this is our new starting point from today. And so now we have it now we have the opportunity to create a training plan. And so it's not it may or may not be a mistake that you made. I screw up all the time and I'm a professional. It becomes very clear to me after the fact. That's the difference, right? As I can recognize the problem after it happened more quickly perhaps, but <laughs> it doesn't mean that I am I am free from error. But yeah, I mean don't feel guilty. Don't feel ashamed. It's it's not a fault. There's not there's nobody to blame. It's not productive to try to blame anybody, the breeder, the dog, your husband, whatever. But also the we are part of that behavior environment unit, and our behaviors are part of are part of what is uh, the the scenario where that be, the the problem behavior is occurring. 
And so the humans need some behavior substitution as well. Yeah. So instead of yelling no when the dog is barking at the door, put something else in that place because there's a function there. Why am I yelling no? Because I'm frustrated and I'm scared and um, and I'm angry or Okay, so that's a terrible because. But anyways, I, I need something else to go there as well. So I can say, go to your place. Yeah. Um, my cue can be, oh, I hear, um, in fact, I'm, I can't believe we've been online this long and we haven't had the UPS truck pull up and everyone finds out that I have five dogs. <laughs> but I have, I, have, I have arranged the antecedents for me, for my family, for this whole situation. I have a jar of treats that are on my desk whenever I record. And as soon as I hear the gears change of a truck pulling into my driveway, I'm going to have my hand in here and I'm going to send them all to their beds and I'm going to throw a handful of food. Um, nice. And this is of course something there was a learning curve for me since I've been doing this podcasting recording thing for a while. And I was doing um, virtual, virtual lessons before that being able to, uh, to cue a new behavior very quickly and have a, and have a contingency in place right there. Um, to, for that to be successful, I need to set myself up. So I need to set up my environment, whether again, baby gates, I have crates, um, I have gates up. I have too many dogs in a small house and too much going on, hmm. uh, and, a, and a lot of traffic. So, so some antecedent arrangement to, to set the humans up for success is really, really helpful and really important. Uh, and so I think that that, and really that has to come first because if we can get the, the human's behavior arranged, then the dog's behavior tends to follow. Nice. So that that is, of course, my job, but that's where I tend to put my emphasis. Yeah. I think you, you sort of accidentally hit on a, on something we've really touched on this show several times, the idea of blame that I don't want to go into now, but that it's not it's not a useful concept. Um, we, we did an episode a while back called the, the Morally Difficult Position of Psychology, which was finding compassion for people who have done horrible things because we understand that there's there are reasons that people do horrible things and that just like calling them a bad person and and killing them doesn't change the 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 reason like where that motivation came from and so it's uh it's it's tricky you know it's hard to even advocate for that position but it also makes the most sense but um so i i like that you brought that in and um and gave lots of really great examples. I want to also make sure that everyone has an opportunity to find out more. If you're just listening to this on on our podcast, uh, to find more about the podcast that you two both do or any organizations you want to point to. So if you want to plug real quick your podcast or where people can learn more about what you do, um, I'd love for you to have an opportunity to do that now. Yes, yeah, so my podcast is really creatively called Animal Training Academy. Um, and the website for that podcast and for other resources from Animal Training Academy is www.animaltrainingacademy.com so if anyone's interested in animal behavior there is a free course there there's podcasts, there's a blog there uh, and there is for intense behavior nerds that want, as one member put it a candy shop for dog nerds Uh, there's there's a membership where we take pieces of content just like this one uh, and we've formed a a tribe, a community around that content to to help people be more effective uh, and get success with their animal training and behavior goals yeah and your engagement rates in there are awesome man the community is great Thanks, and I love having you guys in there. I tag, I tag you guys all the time, Hannah and Ryan, uh, and uh, I know the members really appreciate being able to connect with you like that as well. Uh, and also put a shout out while um, I remember to Dr. Susan Friedman, uh, who has been a huge influence on me. You can find out more about her at behaviorworks.org, uh, and Louise Jinman, uh, Steve, Steve Martin, Natural Encounters Incorporated, just trying to think of who I've mentioned in this episode. Uh, yeah, there's there's a ton of amazing people doing amazing things. Yeah, we can link awesome. a couple of videos, Abraham, of uh, Susan Friedman that I've got online. Perfect. How about and then like social? Do you have like Facebook, Twitter, that sort uh, of yeah. stuff? Uh, so there is a Facebook page for Animal Training Academy where I share podcasts and information about events we're hosting online. Uh, there is a Facebook group where you can go and chat with other people. Uh, and I've got accounts on YouTube and Twitter and oh I'm trying Instagram I'm trying to be more Instagrammy um, so <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I'm on Instagram cool uh, but yeah Facebook's where I hang out most of the time but feel free to connect with me personally or find find the Animal Training Academy pages or groups perfect alright awesome. and Hannah where can people find all your stuff yeah so my podcast is Drinking from the Toilet and you can find that anywhere podcasts are sold 
Um, so Apple Podcasts or uh, I don't even know where all Spotify, etc. Um, I'm also relatively active on social media. So you can find me on Facebook and Instagram is where I spend most of my time. And the easiest way to find me there is just with my name, Hannah Brannigan. My first name is a palindrome. Uh, so my last name is not. So, but, <laughs> but, if, but if you throw Hannah Brannigan and dog training into just about any search field on just about any yeah. Google or social media, you're going to find um, all of my stuff uh, right at the top. Perfect. All right. Cool. Well, uh, awesome. Thank you both so much for your, your time and being here. I, I thought this was really fun and I really loved your, your contributions. Uh, you guys are um, very, very well-spoken and, and had uh, some really awesome experience and insight to share. So appreciate you being here. Yes. And I love soaking up the knowledge you all have to share. It's pretty cool yeah. how uh, I wanted to let the listeners know, like Hannah just reached out and she said, Hey, cool podcast. Here's some thoughts. Um, and like, we kind of kept the discussion going and here we are. So if anybody out there is listening to any of the episodes and you're like, hey, uh, we could dive into this at a different angle, a little more deep um, or different perspectives, please hit us up. We actually have another one of those coming up. Fair, not, I mean, fairly soonish. We cool. have to actually schedule it. But yeah, someone yeah. else who reached out and <laughs> said, hey, I've got more information about a topic we brought up that I'm, I'm sort of teasing it right, uh, now. But I'll just say it goes back to the five to one ratio episode we did. Nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we'll have a little bit of uh, it's it's tangentially related to that, but it'll be, that should be cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, so much respect. Thank you all for your time. Yeah. Thank you so Perfect. much. Yeah. Thank Perfect. You. Thank you. Awesome. All right. Thank let's you. go ahead and wrap it up. All right, with, with that said, this is Ryan O. This is Abraham. And this is Shane. And this is Ryan C. <laughs> and this is. <laughs> Oh, and this is Hannah. We're out. (laughs) You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day.